Welcome to the Sunday Morning Bible Study at Whitestone Christian Fellowship, taught by Pastor Bob Lorenz. We're located in the village of Victor, a little southeast of Rochester, New York. Pastor Bob teaches line by line and verse by verse from the Word of God. Now, let's join this week's Sunday Morning Bible Study, already in progress. Please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 2. And we will read verses 9 through 11 together. If you're just joining us on the internet, we welcome you to the 10 a.m. service of Whitestone Christian Fellowship here in upstate New York. We are enjoying a beautiful, balmy day with bright sunshine for a change. Uh, we're just blessed. Our reading this morning is Hebrews 2, chapters 9 through 11, and please join us as we read the, that together. And we'll be getting into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 for the main message. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, and unto the captain of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren." The work of Jesus on the cross brings us into a brotherhood with each other, but more importantly, with Christ Himself. As we have been going through this first chapter in the last couple of weeks of Ephesians, we are, we are sort of amazed that the church at Ephesus had gotten so far off track. They were still worshiping Diana of the Ephesians, a goddess who permeated their culture. A goddess who, in whose temple there were basically just sex orgies as part of the worship. And gee, Paul has been correcting them, and true to his word, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God for doctrine. So they needed to be reminded of the doctrine that they had sort of left behind or by the wayside. It's good for reproof, reminding us that we have gotten off track. It's good for a lot of things, but Paul is working on that as he goes through this letter. It's good for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction. And what was the last one? <laughs> instruction in righteousness. Method of, li- of living. I need to go back and I need to look at that again. Make sure I get the quote right. 
<clears throat> it's in uh, it's in Second Timothy. I'm always amazed that I think I have this fresh in my mind, and then it just escapes me. <clears throat> I can't even think of the verse right now. Three sixteen. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, telling us how to repent, and instruction in righteousness, how to keep the repentance going in the right direction. That's the, that's the formula that Paul is using on almost every one of his church letters to Christians. This is a strange new teaching that he's bringing to all of these people. Whether it's in Colossians, whether it's in Ephesians, in Thessalonians, or whatever. The pagan mind is being introduced to something new. And because of the Greek influence on the cultures of the region, they're always looking for something new. And when they hear it, it tickles their ears and they want to know more. Knowledge and gaining knowledge was a hallmark of Greek culture with all of their philosophies. Unfortunately, the pagan philosophies don't do anything for the life beyond this one. And that's what Paul is so concerned about with them at the end of the first chapter in verses 22 and 23, he says, And he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filled all in all. There's no question about the church of Jesus Christ being Jesus' church. And as we read in Colossians, there's no question about who created all things. The heavens, the stars, the moons, the planets, and everything on the planets, especially everything on this planet, including us. So Paul is declaring that God says that He gave him all of these things He's to be head over all things in the church, which is, <coughs> which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth, <coughs> filleth all in all. <coughs> As we get into chapter 2 here, he, being, he begins with a very convicting sentence. And he says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You may notice that that phrase, hath he quickened, is in italics. It means that it was not in the original text. 
It is in verse 5. We'll, we'll read it again in verse 5. But it's almost like the translators wanted to soften the blow of this statement. Because if we read this statement without that italicized phrase, it says, and you who were, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Nobody likes to think of themselves as being dead in sin. So this is a pretty harsh statement that Paul opens the chapter with. But he does say later on that there's a change that's taken place. And the change is the influence of the Lord Jesus Christ. His example, His word, His plans for the church, and His plans for us. So, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. How do we know that? We're either, we're either focused on God and His kingdom and the promises that He has for us in the Scriptures, or we're focused on ourselves. Now, when you first look at a group picture taken at a family picnic, who's the first person that you look at to try to find? Everybody tries to find, where am I in the picture? That's the first thing we all look at. We want to know about us. Where do I fit in? Where did I fit in? And that's something that consumes every human being since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Satan tempted Eve. And he said, did God say that you shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree when he knows that it will make you like him. It's the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve came back and she said, uh, yes, that's what he said, and we shouldn't touch it either. Problem number one, she was listening to Satan. Problem number two, she added to God's word. God never said that they shouldn't touch it. He said, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Pick the fruit. Play ball with it. Kick it down the field. Throw it. Feed it to the animals. He didn't say it couldn't be touched. He said it shouldn't be eaten. And yet, she wanted to be like God. She wanted to be better than she was. And she gave, the, he, she gave the fruit of the tree to Adam as well. And he did eat. So there's deception going on from the very beginning. And how do we know that? Because it's affirmed later on in the Scriptures when it tells us that Satan is the father of lies. And he doesn't have to outright lie to us. All he has to do is put a question in our mind. Did God really say that? Why would a loving God do that? We question things immediately because someone asked us the question. We question God's Word. Did God really say that? I can't believe it. I've always been taught that God is a loving God. And He is a loving God. But He's also a judge. He's also the ruler and the creator. 
I remember one time when I was probably six or seven years old, I was playing in a sandbox with one of my buddies a couple doors down. And I did something that he didn't care for. And he says, no, don't do that. I said, why? He says, my sandbox, my rules. Okay. You know what? This is God's sandbox. And these are His rules. It's about ownership and possession. And if you don't play by His rules, <laughs> if you don't live by His rules, you won't be able to go to the sandbox. Anyway, he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We're all living under Satan's guidance in this world. That's what we are exposed to on a daily basis. It's only by the grace of God that we get to know Him and have faith in Him and have a hope for a future. Otherwise, we'd just be like everybody else and living for the world. You know, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Oh, great. What, what good do those toys do? What good do those possessions do once you're dead? They meant something to you. They didn't mean somebody anything to somebody that's probably going to inherit them. They'll just sell them for the money. And the love of money is the root of all evil. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. This word conversation is a little misleading. It is a manner of living. From the Greek, it is better translated a manner of living. This is how we used to live before we knew Christ. Among whom we also had our manner of living in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, just like everybody else. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, says that we all are struggling with the same issues. We're all struggling with the same desires. There's no sin taken us except as is common to man. Those are the things of the world that we've been exposed to. And God calls us to something better. Now, I'm going to reread verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. We all had past tense. It indicates that there's a change that's taken place in the church at Ephesus and the people. 
it indicates that they have abandoned the old thing and probably, unfortunately, have gone back to it because it's comfortable. Living by faith is a challenge to our mental thought processes. The unregenerate man has trouble justifying living a life of faith. Among whom we all had our conversation at times past in the lusts of our flesh, even as others did. But God, in verse 4, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. God has done something great. But I'm going to take you back to John 10, verse 10. Where John writes, The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. Prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in iniquity, he doesn't do anything except come to kill and to destroy and to ruin the work of God in men's hearts. That's what the children of wrath are following. The children of disobedience. I don't know anybody in our country who hasn't heard of Jesus Christ. In fact, most atheists will tell you, oh yeah, I've read the Bible. doesn't make sense to me. can't possibly be any of that. But I've read the Bible, which means that they've heard of Jesus Christ and they've heard of the plan of God, the plan of salvation. They don't think they need to be saved, but they deceive themselves. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together. Literally, He's given us new life together with Christ, for by grace are you saved. By grace are you saved. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God commended His love toward us that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's almost the same, t the same wording that He used in Ephesians. But here He's using it for the Romans. <laughs> Excuse me. He's using it with the Romans. His message is consistent in each one of His epistles because there is no sin taken any of them except as is common to man. The pagan teachings are those of Diana of the Ephesians or Aphrodite of the Greeks. They are nothing but living for pleasure. And it's interesting, just a couple of books ago, we went through the, the book of Ecclesiastes. And King Solomon 
He tried everything. He tried wealth. He tried the arts. He tried buildings. Building projects. He tried physical pleasures and lust. He even says he withheld nothing from himself. And he found it was all just empty. It was just vanity. He withheld nothing from himself and nothing satisfied this longing in his heart for fulfillment. It's like trying to put a a round peg in a square hole. There's gaps. And it can't fulfill. The only thing that can truly fulfill our hearts is the love of God and following Him. So when He's talking to these people, He's he's telling them about themselves. This is what you were. This is what you are now. But be careful that you're not drawn back into those comfort zones, those things that you're familiar with. And He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That only happens when we're forgiven and we recognize the price that Jesus paid for our forgiveness. He reminds us here in verse 7 that in ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. Exceeding riches in His grace. In His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Back up in verse 5, He said, He hath quickened us together with Christ. In verse 6, he says he's raised us up to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And in verse 7, he says that we are aware, made aware of the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ. So it's with Christ, in Christ, and through Christ, all of this happens. That's important. Because none of it happens by accident. It's all God's plan if we're sensitive in the Holy Spirit. If we're listening to what God's Word is telling us. If we're seeing the fulfillment of His Word in our lives as He changes us. I entitled this message today A Recipe for Change. Fall in love with Jesus. That's the recipe. Fall in love with Him because He first loved us and made all of this possible. If if you're unhappy with your life, fall in love with Jesus and fall in love more and more and more with Him. Get to know Him through His Word. Through your your own Bible reading times. Get to know Him as you share what you've learned from week to week with others as you meet together in church. Because they'll be sharing with you as well how faithful Jesus is to each and every one of us 
to get us through the hard times, to bless us with blessed times, and to provide for all the things that we need on a daily basis. That in the ages to come, He might show, here's a prophetic word for us, ages to come, He might show (laughs) the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Sometimes we don't realize how exceeding His grace is except in hindsight. Wow! I've been praying for that for a long time and Jesus just did it. I didn't even realize He was in the process of accomplishing it and suddenly it's done and now I'm blessed. He had it in His plan the whole time. And then he says, for grace, by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. By grace, which is nothing more than unmerited favor. Favor that we didn't earn. Favor that we didn't deserve. But he knows us so well. He says in times ahead. This is somebody that can be used to glorify my name. In times ahead, for grace, by grace are you saved through faith. Because of his, because of his favor towards us as a group, but even as individuals. He saved us through His grace, through faith. He saved us because He gave us the faith to believe. He gave us the faith. That is a gift that He gave us because of His favor. By grace are you saved through faith and that of not of yourselves. I don't have any faith by myself. I may have faith in myself, knowing what things I excel at and what things that I don't do so well at. Excel and not well. well that, that makes sense. Those are opposites. They contrast us. They show us what we can do and what we can't do. They show us what our abilities are and what our disabilities are. But faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God because the faith is of God. And in God, the faith is with Christ, in Christ, and through Christ. Lord, why did we deserve this? God said, oh, I just like you. I'm just showing my favor towards you. I received a bookmark when I was an early Christian. And it said, God sees us like He wants us to be, but He accepts us as we are. He sees the future, 
long before we can even acknowledge even our present. He sees our future and he says, I know what I can make out of this one. Here are the skilled fingers of the potter redesigning that lump of clay. Working his thumb in to get that that little knot of dried dirt out of the clay. Working his fingers to provide shape that it, that it would be a sanctified vessel and not just an earthen one. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. Lest any man should boast. We are not saved by our works. No. After we're saved, our works enhance our faith. Our good works enhance what God has already done. Once He has already accomplished the salvation in us and sanctified us and is working with us, we find that there are, there are attributes in our personality that come to the surface. Things like compassion and empathy. And with the gifts of the Spirit, problem solving and discernment. The ability to teach. The ability to discern. And for the and for the blessed, the ability to heal and to restore. The ability to prophesy and see how those things turn out. The prophecy the prophecy is the prophecies that come forward, they're just statements. Until we see that they're fulfilled. Until we see that the prophecy is fulfilled, it's just a statement. And we know that there are many false prophets out there who prophesy. There are many churches, there are many pseudo-Christian churches. They call themselves Christian churches, but they're not. There are many that will prophesy, and then when the prophecy doesn't happen, the, the church falls apart. There are dozens. There are dozens of failed church teachers because the false prophecies were spoken by false prophets. That's why discernment is such a good, good gift to realize that we all have through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The work of salvation is God's work. The work of salvation is God's work. There's a story of uh, Gideon and the Midianites 
in the Old Testament. Midianites were somebody who was always you know, right around the fringe of the Jews. And as the story goes, the Midianites were stealing the crops of the Jews. And they were always kind of antagonizing them. And they were storing them in caves. And Gideon found himself in a cave one time and there were plenty of things in that cave for him to eat. And he was just... He considered himself the lowest of the low. But God called, out, called him out one time and said, Gideon, thou man of valor. And Gideon says, what God? I'm, I'm the youngest in my family. My family is the smallest in the kingdom. And my tribe is the smallest of all the tribes. And you're calling me a man of valor? <laughs> you get the wrong address. And God spoke to him again and said, Gideon, I want you to fight. I want you to fight the Midianites. Thousands upon thousands of Midianites. And Gideon's, Gideon said, Really? I'll know, you know what, Lord, I, I, I want you to prove it to me that I'm the one you want. If I put a fleece out tonight, and when I wake up in the morning, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, I'll believe it's you. And so God said, okay. So Gideon woke up the next morning, the fleece was wet and the ground was dry. And Gideon still had his doubts. So he said, God, do it the other way around today. If I wake up in the morning and the fleece is dry and the ground is all wet around it, then I'll be assured that it's you. And the next morning it was just as God planned. The fleece was dry and the ground all around was wet. And so Gideon Gideon relinquished. He said, okay, God, I'm listening. You want me to fight. He said, gather the armies of Israel together. And so there were 37,000 Israeli fighters. They gathered together. They're prepared to go to battle. And God speaks to Gideon and He says, Gideon, that's too many. What do you mean it's too many? They have, they have 100,000 more than we do. We've only got 37,000. You still want, this is still a David and Goliath thing. Gideon, it's too many. Pare them down. If any aren't willing to go to war, let them go home. And so they, there was like 22,000 that went home. And he gathered the remaining fighters. And God said, Gideon, it's still too many. What do you mean it's too many? We're far outnumbered. You're far outnumbered 
because you've got too many. Take them to the stream and have them drink from the stream. If any of them lay down with their face in the water to drink of the stream, tell them to go home. But if any of them kneel by the stream and pick the water up with their hand to drink of it, those are the ones who are your warriors. So all the fighters were gone except 300. And they're going to be facing 137,000. What What's happening here is the same thing that we just read in verse 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God will not share His glory with any other. When you looked at that picture at the beginning, and you first thing you found was yourself, that's a form of boasting. The fact that God had you there at that time was maybe a miracle. But if salvation is God's work, then He will be faithful to complete the work. If salvation is God's work, then the glory all goes to Him, not to any man, not to Gideon, not to any of those not to any of those fighters. Even the 300 are going to be led by the Holy Spirit. And those 300 won the battle. An impossible battle. Far outnumbered. But in wisdom, in discernment, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the battle was won by Gideon and his band of 300. God won't share His glory with anyone. He won't share the glory of your salvation because it's His work. He won't share the victories won for Israel because that was His work also. Verse 10, it says, as we close out today, it says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained. It's all been planned out. Ordained that we should walk in them. God has a plan. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean He needs thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of soldiers to work out His plan. God controls the situations and the circumstances. He controls the battlefield. He controls every weapon. And He tells us that there shall be no weapon formed against us. Because He's in charge of the battle. He's in charge of the war. He's in charge of the battlefield. He oversees everything 
And as we started with verse 22 of chapter 1, and He hath put all things under His feet. The Father has put all things under the feet of Christ and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. God saves us because He loves us. He gifts us with faith because He loves us. He lets that faith grow and deepen because He loves us. He sent Jesus to the cross because He loves us and doesn't want us to have to pay for our own sin. He sent Jesus as a substitute. We are His workmanship. The word workmanship here is, in the Greek, it's poema. It's the word where we get the, the commonly known word poem. And God writes beautiful things for us. He takes he takes our formerly pagan style of living, our manner of living with the prince and the power of the air, in a darkened world, and He makes something beautiful out of it. When we think of a poem, there are some dark poets like Edgar Allan Poe, but there are beautiful, beautiful love poems like Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poems, the sonnets. They are love songs and love poems. She wrote to her husband, How do I love thee? Oh, let me count the ways. God writes a love poem and He gives it to us. It's Jesus Christ in the Word, in words of love. We are His poem, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Salvation comes first. Good works come second. All glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask You to bless our time this week. Lord, help us to go through this chapter again in our own time to see and experience and to pick out His grace towards us in every word because we are His poem and He writes nothing but beautiful things for us. We ask, Lord, that You remind us every day that we are His workmanship. We are His poema. Lord, bless our time. Even as we finish today's service and have fellowship for coffee hour, Lord, bless our time each and every day and every moment of every day. Go before us, Lord. Help us to live the way You want us to live. Help us to play 
according to the play of the owner of the sandbox. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> From Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us that Thy way may be known upon earth, Thy saving health among all nations. Take an opportunity every, to, every day to cross somebody's path and give them a word of encouragement, a word from the Word, and bless them and minister to their hearts. Your mission field awaits outside the door. <laughs> Have a great day in the Lord. Have a great week. And we'll pick up at verse 11 next week here in Ephesians 2. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Morning Bible Study at Whitestone Christian Fellowship, taught by Pastor Bob Lorenz. To access the list of teachings or to check the archives for Pastor Bob's weekly observations column, log on to whitestonecf.com. There you can also check the weekly schedule and any upcoming events. To contact us or to drop a note to Pastor Bob, you can email us at whitestonecf at gmail.com or call us at 585-924-8820. Whitestone Christian Fellowship is a non-denominational congregation. Every Sunday, Pastor Bob walks us through the Bible, teaching line upon line and verse by verse. And we're located in the village of Victor, a little southeast of Rochester, New York. And if you're in the area, we invite you to visit us. From upstate New York, Pastor Bob encourages all of us to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Until next time, remember that Jesus is our victor. Stay close to Him. <laughs>